Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I am your professional film critic, Sean Patrick. With me is uh, Jeff Lasseter. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing pretty good. Of course, you can find us in all the uh, various different social media places. Probably not Twitter very soon. If the if uh, if Elon the idiot decides to uh, make it pay, I'm definitely not going to be part yeah. of that. Uh, that's all I've seen for the last two days is if I have to pay for this hell site, I'm quitting. And it, I, he honestly must just make more money if it goes under. I there ha- Yeah, I mean, because that's what he's trying to do. It's it's truly bizarre because you can't understand any of the decisions. Uh, <laughs> there was this guy in professional wrestling. His, his name was Vince Russo, and he left WWF to go to the, the rival WCW, and he made so many bad decisions that people actually to this day believe he was sent there to destroy it. <laughs> like that's <laughs> the level of his poor decision making that led to that company going under. And it's like that watching it's like watching that all over again, but with Elon Musk and Twitter. Like he's joined this specifically to end it. <laughs> I I think that I honestly everything that is keeps coming out and how he's just pandering to the Nazi fringe and all that just it makes me wonder if he just wants it to go away or if he's just trying to like hurt trans people, because that's all it is now. It's like he agrees with every anti-trans thing that's going on. He is, you know, like interesting under everything that says, you know, oh, they're coming to groom our children and all that. And it's just like how, how you you can say nothing. <laughs> you, you know, there's that there is that that thing about where, you know, like I can't remember, but basically like you know, being a fool, but not letting anybody know, or I don't, yeah, I don't know, but opening one's mouth and removing all doubt, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, Mark Twain, mm-hmm. yeah, I he just he keeps doing this stuff, and I'm like, dude, all you got to do is not just don't don't say anything, yeah. <laughs> Why buy a company that's making money and turning it into a company, turn it into a company that doesn't make money? It just seems it seems very convenient. <laughs> it seems it seems like the conspiracy would be real that he just did this to destroy it. Yeah, I, I did somebody say something bad about him and he just decided to do this to my uh, my honestly my um my theory on all this is he said he was going to buy it and everybody was like, "Yeah, you should." And he's like, he, you know, he kind of puffed himself up like billionaires do. And then he realized what a bad decision it would be after he was kind of forced into it <laughs> like trump running for president <laughs> <laughs> kind of um you know i had a conversation with somebody today who i used to kind of respect them and i was like look all of, trump could have kept doing all the stuff he was doing if he just had not run for president mm-hmm. you know he could have kept but he saw the money that was to be made <laughs> <laughs> and was like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And the same thing with Elon Musk and Twitter. I'm, I, it's still Twitter on my iPad. I have not updated it to X. Um, no one will. <laughs> oh, no. Enough people are like accidentally updating everything. Yeah. And I feel like if I have to do a hard, a hard uh, reset on my iPad, that it might just automatically do it. But until that happens, it's still Twitter to me. <laughs> um. But I think people people see that like he just he's kind of like well shit I had to do this and I don't want it and nobody's gonna buy it because I let all the Nazis back on so yeah I guess I'll just tank it and see if I can get money off of insurance or something I don't know if you're some kind of Elon bro who somehow stumbled on this podcast cry please cry go ahead and cry because yeah. we honestly don't give a fuck um- <laughs> write us a bad review like you're going to. <laughs> Um, I just finished the new Stephen King book and I went on uh, audible and I went to the reviews of it Mm -hmm. and the first probably 20, 20, the first 20 minutes out of a 13 hour book, he talks, it takes place in 2021 when COVID was still rampant and, Mm -hmm. and not, you know, abating at all. Um, people are still under lockdowns and mask mandates and things like that. And that's part of that because the main character is um she's obsessive compulsive Hmm. and so it's the perfect kind of 
microcosm for her character. Well, I went and I read some of the reviews and it was just like woke liberalism. Stephen King should leave his politics outside of his books. I'm like, if you've never read a Stephen King book, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a review bomb because yeah. they're, they all say the same thing, you know, sick of political correctness and what and I'm like, dude, you just want to say the N word. <laughs> well, why can't I? <laughs> You can, you just, you're not free from consequences. Exactly. That's the part that people don't seem to understand. Uh, and movie reviews. people don't understand the first amendment. <laughs> yeah. Either. We talk about movies anyway, on okay. the show. Um, did you see the trailer oh, for this is a movie podcast? <laughs> I think so. Did you see the trailer for dream scenario? I have not. It just dropped today. It's on our Facebook page. Uh, everyone is a critic on Facebook. Uh, the new a24 film uh, starring uh, Nicolas Cage uh, and uh, really I mean Nicolas Cage in an A24 movie what more could you ask for <laughs> uh, it's just yeah I saw I saw a gif of it but now that you say that I'm pretty sure that's what it was from yeah it, it looks incredible uh, the story is bizarre I can't even begin to describe it but I'm I'm all in I'm all in for for Nicolas Cage's a24 era that's what this is gonna be <laughs> I mean, it wasn't released by them, but wasn't that kind of pig? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm. It's on our Facebook page, so anybody wants to see it. If you haven't seen it already, you can find it there, Jeff. You'll be able to find it there uh, when you're able to. Um, I will. <laughs> I want to talk about documentaries before we get into the meat of the show because uh, we've been doing the. I've been part of the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. Uh, we're we're running through as many documentaries as we possibly can, and I came across one, and I'm not just talking about this with you, Jeff, because because of who you are, but this is a documentary that really hit me, and I've been talking about it with other critics, trying to get them to watch it, and it's not an easy task. It's a documentary called Out in the Ring, and it's about gay professional wrestlers, and this documentary is absolutely incredible and i'm i'm somebody who goes back to the you know the 80s in terms of professional wrestling fandom i go back to like being a a huge hulk hogan fan back in the day and and never really kind of as a child understanding that underlying homoeroticism of professional wrestling that never hit me until obviously when i became an adult but uh there was this thing that happened like when in the 90s it was on the regular you would hear the f slur on television, on cable TV, <laughs> nationwide for the entire world to hear, aimed at uh, you know various different wrestlers. Well, it was uh, Gold Dust or Billy and Chuck. These these uh, characters who are playing these supposedly gay characters, uh, who would always turn out to not actually be gay. Uh, they'd always have to affirm their manhood in some way. Gold Dust gets a wife, and <laughs> Billy and Chuck have to admit that they're not really gay and that this was all a stunt for whatever you know they always had to come out and say that they weren't actually gay no homo uh, and, but this documentary gets at the heart of something that is really interesting because in the past 20 years there's been this incredible sea change in professional wrestling where a number of genuine gay wrestlers have emerged uh, a trans woman in the past two years has been a world champion in a major wrestling uh company and the and there's this guy named Effie who has put on this Effie's gay cruise that has turned into one of the biggest happenings in all of professional wrestling. And people are turning out wrestling fans who, again, have the reputation of not being the most progressive are turning out for these gay wrestlers and they're going out for their shows and selling those shows out. And recently on an episode of AEW Dynamite, a wrestler by the name of Anthony Bowens was rejecting an offer of a woman on TV by saying, bitch, I'm gay. And the entire crowd <laughs> exploded on his behalf. Happy for him. Nobody screamed the F slur. Nobody shouted him down. Everybody was on his side. And it was so heartening to see this, this group, this wrestling group of fandom that has been so often seen as non-progressive having this stance and kind of seeing the world differently in just the past 20 years. It's kind of remarkable. And this documentary really captures that. So I want to say this, and this goes pretty much for society, not just wrestling, but the anti LGBT crowd tend to be the loudest 
because they're the least informed. And I think what's been happening is that enough people are fed up with it. Uh, you know, the homophobia in sports that they're finally coming out. And when somebody says the F word, <clears throat> they're like, shut the fuck up, you know, mm-hmm. shut up where we support gay people. We support trans people. Did you see CM Punk? Yeah. His, his, his tirade. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's as people know people who are LGBT as people who just generally aren't hateful bigots, you know, it, it, they tend to speak up a little more and that, that vocal minority, and it is a minority, whether, you know, I think it always has whether they're in the, whether they're in the halls of Congress or they're, you know, picketing Disneyland with their swastika flags, because that's normal. um, They're a minority. And I I mean, that's why I, I, again, getting political, but that's why I tell people that if you are LGBTQ, if you know somebody who is, who, if you have a family member that is, and you vote for these people who wish to silence them, you're complicit in their oppression. Mm-hmm. The most important thing you can do is vote for people who are not actively going after those communities. If you care about those communities at all, if you care about people just wanting to live their lives, then you know, and you're and you're one of these people who has supposedly woken up in the last twenty to thirty years. They've always been around. They're just scared to say it because they don't want to look like you know a quote unquote groomer or a pedo or something like that. Because that's what they automatically get branded as if you're pro LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched that CM Punk video, and everybody was screaming yes. You know, they were all supporting him in the video and. And 95% of the comments were supportive and positive and, you know, oh, thank you for saying this. I'm LGBT and I've, you know, I've, I've just recently started to feel uh, welcome in the world of professional wrestling. Um, and very, very, very few comments are people who came there to shit on him mm-hmm. or to shit on the community as a whole. Um, and I, you know, you always hear, oh, that those people are going to die out and whatever, but they're not. I mean, there's always going to be people who misunderstand people or just hate people because that's how they were taught. And though they're going to keep teaching people. Um, so yeah, a documentary like that, well, it's, it's refreshing. It's not necessarily surprising to me mm-hmm. because we're getting the, you know, we have the anti LGBT backlash that happens about every four to eight years for an, during an election cycle. But then we also get the backlash to the backlash. And I think we're starting to get there again, very slowly. Um, you know, a lot of people who are, it's people are figuring out that if you're calling somebody a groomer, you probably have child sex abuse images on your hard drive. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like clockwork. It now. is weird how that works now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same thing. If you call somebody the F slur, chances are you're pretty, you kind of probably think Dick is delicious. Um, it's just, it's, it's, we're hopefully coming back out of this, you know, this whole anti-gay LGBT thing with the election coming up. It's going to ramp up before it ramps down, but hopefully enough people who see stuff, you know, see these, these documentaries like you're talking about and say, you know, look up to these wrestlers before they know they're gay. We'll look up to them still knowing they are or trans or whatever. And, you know, Oh, well, I've liked them for a long time. And, you know, I've never, if, if, if being gay is bad, but I like this person, then how can it be bad? You know, and they're gay and, you know, we've had that before. Yeah. So I hopefully, you know, a documentary like this will speak to the people who it needs to speak to. Yeah. I just hope people see it. It's been, it's, it was, people were quite skeptical when I mentioned, anytime I mentioned professional wrestling related to anything, uh, people are skeptical, but I think with the subject matter, maybe more people will give it, 
give it a shot. Uh, I, something, something, something about being gay apparently elevates professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know what? Though I know that uh, one of my friends is he MCs. He's gay and he MCs for shows. Mm-hmm. And part of it is he likes big, burly, fat guys. So that you know, that's probably part of the allure. But they're all very cool to him, and he's like some of his best friends are in that world, and they don't give a shit. And I'm hoping that more people, you know, like Generation X and under are coming around to that. I think they are. I think they are with the popular with this. They, they named so many names and some of them are only recently known to have come out of the closet. And it's and it's just uh, it's so heartening to see that the women's division of WWE is basically mostly lesbians at this point. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, or just a lot of people who are on that spectrum. And I'm not making a joke of that. Like it's, it's, it's just something that people are becoming more comfortable with expressing. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating documentary that I hope everyone sees. It's called out in the ring. And uh, it goes into even the history of gay professional wrestlers, uh, which is, is quite fascinating as well. First, we got to talk about the the new movies uh, that would lead us into our conversation about the box office. Each week, I'm posting uh, the what happened at the box office over the weekend, and uh, this weekend it was a uh, it was a tight one uh, at the box office. The Nun Two, though, holding out at number one at fourteen point seven million dollars, and interestingly enough, in week two, it actually matched to the opening weekend of the Nun One, which is probably not the <laughs> best not the best news. That they would want, you know, they'd want you to focus on it being number one, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it came up just a little bit short. Uh, but the last week, last week's story, Juwan continues to be a hit. That movie is uh, still in sixth place. That's pretty impressive. I, I'm just fascinated by the the box office at the moment. We we're talking about the strike, of course. Hollywood studios are saying that box office numbers are down because uh, because of the strike and. <laughs> And the stars are like, no, we'd be out there promoting our movies if you'd just give us a fair contract. And they're right. <laughs> right now, you know, the the, the stars of uh, the main movie we're going to talk about this week, Haunting in Venice, can't be out there talking about their movie because of the strike. Now, even their director, who is also an actor, can't be out there talking about the movie because of the strike. I imagine if they'd had, you know, multiple Colbert hits and, and Jimmy Fallon hits with Tim, Tina Fey and Kenneth Branagh. There's probably three, four, five million dollars in those appearances that are not going to be there because of this strike. And that's the fault of the studio. 100%. Yes. Yeah. They're they're just making fools of themselves. And if they think that people are going to buy this nonsense, uh, the nonsense story that the studios are selling. Yeah, I don't I don't understand the. They think that AI is the new thing, and then that's going to, you know, completely revolutionize the industry. And, you know, they can get the, the, for years. The example has been Marilyn Monroe. We could make a new Marilyn Monroe movie if we just oh. get this technology down. Leave well, they don't different. have the technology down for one. Yeah. It's, you know, it's growing by leaps and bounds every year. But who's going to write those stories? AI. It's gonna. It's gonna end up being like a jumbled mess, like several seasons of Once Upon a Time, where it sounds like it was written by a computer. <laughs> you know whose fault this is, though. It, there's two guys who are really at fault for this uh, in terms mm-hmm. of this idea that AI can work, and it's James Cameron and and uh, Robert Zemeckis. Both of them hate actors. They hate working with actors. They don't want to work with actors because actors get in the way of their vision. and they're the reason why these tech bros now who are making their way into hollywood think that they can do ai and make it a thing well it's it's not about i i understand that they have a vision and i understand that you know there's a there is a certain point of view where an animated movie can be done completely by AI I completely get it. But if you want real stories with real people told by real people, you're not going to, it's never going to be able to be replaced. If you're, if you're working for an AI audience, if the AI is going to also be the audience, then it works great. <laughs> but the AI <laughs> is never going to buy a ticket. The AI is never going to have money 
to purchase movie tickets. It's human beings. We're human beings. We want to see other human beings expressing themselves as human beings. That's what we want. <laughs> I know I know that these guys think that they can get around that. You can't get around that. That's what we want. We want to identify. We want to see ourselves in someone on a movie screen. That's what we want. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about Indiana Jones, the last one, and how, well, they could have made that movie without Harrison Ford. And I said, no, they couldn't. A, he did all the performance as Indiana Jones. It was still him. All they did was map a younger face to him. Mm -hmm. That's literally all they did. And yes, you can do that, but you're still not going to, you're not, if you, if you did a completely AI Indiana Jones movie with a completely AI Harrison Ford, you're never going to get this. It's always going to be different and it's always going to be off because Harrison Ford knows that character. He is that character and he imbues everything that he's done over the last 40 some years as that character into his performance. Whether he's playing young or old, it's still Harrison Ford. Truly. And you're, you're not going to get that with, you're not going to be able to make a new Marilyn Monroe movie. You could put her in a commercial like they did in the 80s and 90s. You can, sure, oh, put her in God. a commercial. Yeah. But it's not going to, You're there's no way you're going to be able to make a movie that is as heartfelt and as well acted as she could do. Yeah. There's never so, going to be a soul there. Her eyes will always yeah. be dead. They'll always be dead. That's just going to be it because it's not her. And we all know it's not her. These people have, have, the, have the memory of a gnat. Do you not remember what happened when Fred Astaire danced with a dust devil? And the <laughs> outrage. The outrage that came yeah. with that. People hated it. They hated it. Give me a break. Stop doing this. This is this, this is a lot of tech bro bullshit. This is the crypto yeah. of Hollywood. Knock it off. It's going to fail. Would have, I would have absolutely killed to see, have seen Kenneth Branagh and Tina Fey sitting side by side at a junket mm -hmm. talking about some of the backstage hijinks that, you know, happened mm -hmm. because they're both, you know, they both have a that kind of spirit. And no, we can't have that because. Bob Iger and Robert Zaslav think that they're going to be able to make movies for 15 bucks as long as they just <laughs> they can't give up 3% of the of the fucking profits that they already make. <laughs> yeah. It's literally 3% would solve the would end the would end this fucking thing right now and they can't do it. That's how greedy these fuckers are. It's ridiculous and they think we don't notice. You know and, and it's there's also that meme that goes around, you know, that the top one percent is telling the top twenty percent to hate the top, uh, the bottom eighty percent because they're trying to take your stuff. Well, who's taking their stuff? It's the top one percent, and in this scenario, that's Bob Iger and Zaslav. You know, I mean, the guy already fucking ruined HBO. Oh god, yeah, I see that. Yeah, I did. You know, HBO Max was great and now like you, it's like twitter you get the worst stuff pushed to the top when you sign on i canceled mm -hmm. i canceled a lot of streaming stuff this month i canceled netflix months ago uh hbo max i canceled hulu because what are you know after the last strike they said streaming was not a, a viable platform and that's why they couldn't pay actors and writers and things like that and then Hulu became a thirty billion dollar industry within, you know, two years of that. Mm -hmm. And now saying, "Oh, we can't," you know, Bob Iger, we can't, you know, we can't give you the money you want. It's not viable. We've already played that game, Bob. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, such bullshit. <laughs> such bullshit. Uh, but, you know, talking about human experiences and talking about seeing ourselves in characters on the screen, let's segue into our first movie of the night, which is Inside, starring Willem Dafoe. And this one came out months ago. It's now available on Amazon Prime, but we didn't get it in either theatrically or even uh, notice when it came out on, on uh, Blu-ray and DVD and streaming. But this one stars Willem Dafoe as a 
burglar who's uh, gone into this high-tech apartment building to uh, steal art, and then he ends up being trapped inside. Uh, he is trapped inside this house. He cannot get out, and he's got to find a way to stay alive because things keep happening that continue to put his life in danger uh, throughout however long this is that he's inside this apartment. Uh, it's just Kenneth. There's just Will Defoe and a camera, and then a various set pieces that they come up with for him to do, trying to, you know, carve his way through a door, trying to break a window, trying to. Uh, break open the skylight, uh, trying to feed himself on what little food there is in this place and ever, becoming ever more disheveled and detached from reality. Uh, and in many ways, it's kind of fascinating. And in many ways, it's kind of tedious. Uh, this is a, It's a fascinating movie and it's a fascinating idea. And Willem Dafoe is exactly the kind of actor who who has the presence and the charisma to carry you in this. But I don't necessarily know if the movie has anything beyond just him. I don't think it has anything bigger to say. And for a time, it does just become a tedious series of events that happen that uh, don't really culminate in anything particularly interesting. Uh, did you get a chance to see this? I did not. I did not. Have you heard about it? I, the first I heard about it was you bringing it up. <laughs> For when you brought it up, I'm like, oh, this must be an Apple project because it's not nobody's talking about it. Yeah, it, it got a little attention back uh, when it came out, but uh, it didn't stick around very long. And it, like I said, it didn't get a theatrical release. Do you have any interest in this idea? I like Willem Dafoe. Um, the premise sounds decent, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more stuff I, w- I would probably watch first. Mm-hmm. It's an endurance test for him and for us. <laughs> that is, uh, it is, you're having to endure him uh, doing a lot of things. The water gets shut off at one point so he can no longer use the bathroom. Uh, he's got to come up with a creative solution for that. Uh, he's running. There's barely any food. The, the, the apartment is owned by a guy who is on vacation for most of the year. So he's. He gets locked in, and I think the time frame could be between six and eight months. He's trapped in this in this apartment just by himself, going insane. I mean, that's the amount of time that literally seems to pass as we're watching this, and it's just him. He's got no one to work off of. He he starts talking to the uh, uh, to the uh, TVs, the security cameras, at one point because he can see people outside the apartment. Uh, and so he gives them names and starts creating little stories in his head about who they are. Uh, but beyond that, it's just him uh, doing this whole <laughs> doing this whole business. And it is quite it, it, and sometimes it's quite entertaining. And sometimes, like I said, it's just a series of set pieces with no real. Uh, they have the only connective tissue is his performance. And like I said, at a certain point, it becomes tedious. It becomes a little gross. <laughs> and, uh yeah, that's that's inside. Yeah, I think the other inside sounds a lot better and is a lot better. Um, have you seen the other inside? Which one is that? Uh, it's a French film. Um, it came out in uh, I think two thousand three, maybe. Um, and it's the story of a woman who is. Uh, she's pregnant and she's on her way to a uh, OBGYN appointment with her husband and is in uh, a pretty horrific car accident and he's killed. Hmm. Um, and she is uh, on Christmas Eve. I always watch it at Christmas because it's a Christmas movie, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, 2007. I'm, 2007. I'm looking at it on IMDb. Yeah. Um, it's uh, Beatrice Dahl is the antagonist in the movie and Alison Paradis plays the protagonist. And the, the story is basically this woman played by Beatrice Dahl breaks into this other woman's house on Christmas Eve to steal the baby that she thinks should be her, hers Yikes. and how she's going to do it is cut it out of her. Ooh. And I mean, 
mayhem ensues. I mean, this is one of the bloodiest movies I've ever seen. And I, I say that as somebody who heard about it uh-huh. and I, or I got the movie on eBay from somebody and it was like uncut, whatever. Well, it was a blockbuster disc and, you know, blockbuster famously butchered <laughs> the, these movies. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that movie, when I saw the, I finally got, somebody gave me the uncensored version and wow, it's just fucking insane. Hmm. It's like martyrs and uh, high tension. You know, those movies that everybody talks about as being like, wow, these French horror movies. This one is right up there. Really? I've never I've never even heard of it, honestly. Or if it's, I did, I forgot I, I, about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of those movies that it's you, you just can't imagine. It like actually happening but it has happened i mean you've heard you know if you listen to true crime you've heard these stories yeah yeah um so if i'm gonna watch a movie called inside it's gonna be that <laughs> fair enough that's, so. that's, uh, that's understandable i i don't necessarily recommend inside unless you're like a, a willem dafoe obsessive which i'm sure there's got to be at least one uh <laughs> even though he doesn't show off as a confusingly large penis uh, <laughs> I was gonna say, well, how are we gonna work that in there? <laughs> we gotta be on brand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not uh, featured in the film, as I can recall. I think I would remember it. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend it unless you absolutely need to see everything that Willem Dafoe has done. I did watch the whole thing. I didn't want to turn it off, so it's not it's not a bad movie by any stretch. It's just not one that I would be eagerly telling people to rush out and see. Moving on, we're talking about the uh, number two movie at the box office this weekend, uh, which is, of course, uh, A Haunting in Venice, uh, finishing a close second behind The Nun. And uh, A Haunting in Venice is the third film in Kenneth Branagh's series of Hercule Poirot mysteries that started with uh, Murder on the Orient Express and then Death on the Nile and now A Haunting in Venice. Uh, Hercule Poirot is retired from the mystery business. He's living in Venice. He's hired security to keep people away from him so they don't try to draw him back into new mysteries uh, but this changes when his old friend uh, played by Tina Fey who's kind of a Agatha Christie type she's an author who has been using mm-hmm. his mysteries as the basis for her stories uh, she finds her way into his home and uh, gets him back out uh, into the world of Venice on Halloween night to attend a seance uh, which uh, is going to be overseen by one Joyce Reynolds played by Michelle Yeoh at the home of uh, a opera singer named Rowena, played by Kelly Riley. Uh, this woman is going to be contacting uh, the late daughter of the opera singer, who uh, died mysteriously about a year prior. And uh, Poirot is there to try and debunk her, to determine that she's uh, a liar and a con artist, and you know, basically prove that this is all a sham. Uh, that is at least what he's been told that he's going to do, uh, what he's being invited there to do. Uh, and indeed, he will do that. And that's going to lead to the actual mystery, which is a death of one of the people attending this party, which also includes a doctor played by Jamie Dornan, uh, includes uh, the opera singer's maid and uh, the uh, fiance of her of, of the opera singer's daughter who died. Uh, he is also in te- invited, you know, even though she didn't invite him. Uh, there are several other players, including a young boy uh, played by Jude Hill, who is also in Kenneth Branagh's uh, Oscar nominated film. What was that called? <laughs> I can't honestly remember what it was called. Uh, anyway, the, him and Jamie Dornan were father and son in that movie as well. Um, the uh, This is not a bad movie, but I guessed, Jeff, what was going to happen. I guessed the plot about 15 minutes in, and uh, I was just kind of deflated after that and kind of lost interest. I, I Kenneth Branagh kind of pulled me back into it a couple times and got me interested again, but... Uh, yeah, I was kind of bummed out when I when when it was you know when it when they confirmed what I'd already guessed. It just kind of like, yeah, I know. <laughs> what are you? you know, what are you thinking? What do you? What did you think? Well, okay, so this was based on the story Halloween Party mm-hmm. by Agatha Christie, and um, the only there's the only thing that is even kept from the book mm-hmm. is that it 
starts on Halloween. Uh, and some of the character names are the same. And uh, that uh, Tina Fey's character does get Poirot to come in and solve something. However, the book has 1,000% more child murder in it. Um, mm. <laughs> the The book starts off with... Uh, um, I just blanked on her character's name. Uh, Ariadne Oliver, who's played by Tina Fey, is at is at a house, the house of Rowena, who is also in this movie, uh, preparing for a Halloween party. Mm-hmm. And at said party, there is a girl named Joyce, <laughs> not a medium, uh, who says, I witnessed a murder. Hmm. And I didn't know it was a murder at the time, but it was a murder. And then later on during the party, she's found with her head in a bucket that they were bobbing for apples in and she's been murdered. And so Ariadne Oliver Oliver comes to Poirot and says, I need you to help me solve this. There's no mediums. It's, Not a closed, you know, like a one location closed door mystery Mm -hmm. uh, like this movie is. Uh, It's, you know, Leopold, who is the little boy, is her brother, and he also gets murdered. And there's also there's going to be another murder. Almost. It's just it's it's disappointing that we could that he couldn't do that. Mm hmm. Uh, this is a completely, you know, it's not an Agatha Christie story, the movie. It is using a couple of her characters. And the fact that Ariadne Oliver was created by Agatha Christie to kind of insert herself into Poirot's mysteries, because he she was, he was her favorite. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of, t- you can tell that from reading her books, which I have read and listened to quite a few of them. And the, I don't get that from here. And they, they do, there is that plot point at the end of the movie that makes it seem like there's no chance that she'll ever show up in another one of his movies because he has such great disdain for her mm-hmm. that it's very disappointing because I, she was absolutely the bright spot of this movie for me other than Poirot, you know, played by Kenneth Branagh, who I think is, does a really serviceable job as that. Um, but she was really the, my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, at the end when they kind of part ways, you realize that while he might be going on to uh, solve more mysteries in the future, she might not be a part of them. And that's disappointing to me. It's unkind uh, in, in, in many ways to, to Agatha Christie. The, the, he, the, the things that he goes on to say eventually about her and, and it's whole rather convoluted as well, how they connect her, you know, around about to the plot uh, to the point where she becomes a suspect. Uh, it, it's really kind of cruel how they treat her considering that is Agatha, Agatha Christie's own, insert character you should probably be a little bit nicer about how you portray that character and i thought that was kind of needless <laughs> for sure yeah um to to treat that character that way uh she's also just tina fey is just innately likable so it, playing up that sort of despicable side doesn't work at all for me uh and, and really once i figured out like i said i figured out the the main mystery right away it just didn't take took 15 minutes to really guess uh, the rest of the movie, what I needed is not so much continuing mystery. What I need is what we got from our classic, which is a, a character piece that, that highlights fun characters that I want to be around. So Poirot should, should for me be not unlike Charles Lawton in the, in, in our classic, which is a guy who's just so entertaining and so interesting and so fun to watch that it doesn't matter that you've guessed what the mystery is. You're just mm-hmm. so entertained by what he's doing that that's all that really matters. And I don't think Branna is capable of that. I think this is the this is now the third movie that he's played this character in. 
The last one was awful. Like, he spent so much time establishing why Poirot has a mustache. And for the life of me, I don't know why that's part of that movie. But that is part of that movie, the origin story of his mustache. But he spent more time on that than he has making the character of Poirot be the most entertaining and interesting character in a Poirot movie, which is a very weird approach. Uh, Have you watched the 1970s Poirot movies? I haven't. Okay. The thing about those movies is that Poirot, played by Albert Finney, um, is just a fuss budget. He is just a fuss budget. He is not... They don't have to explain why he just is. Mm -hmm. He is engaging and, uh, you know, even Peter Ustinov, who plays Poirot in Evil Under the Sun, he has a little more relaxed than Albert Finney, but still has, you know, you you just accept that's who the character is. Mm -hmm. And I think that Kenneth Branagh, because he's in 2023 and 2020, you know, 2019, He's having to tell, not show, why this character is the way he is to audiences who, quite honestly, if the people that he's tr- that are going to see these that are not that aren't going to get why he is why he is, they don't want to be told either. And the people who are going because they love this character, they don't need to be told. He just is. Mm-hmm. And for me, that that's the big drag on him as the star. Yeah, I think I think and, he's perfectly capable of doing it the way you said. He just doesn't because I think he either he's insulting the insulting the audience's intelligence or or underestimating it. Well, yeah, I th- and he also he wants to be the star. Now, that's the the movie of the se- the movies of the 70s, Murder on the Orient Express, Evil Under the Sun, um, that was a different, a different kind, but it was still kind of in that, uh, and death on the Nile, those were about who the stars were. You know, you had Angela Lansbury and Olivia Hussey and yeah. Lauren Bacall and Betty Davis and all these legends playing these parts. And it was love boat for movie stars. <laughs> well, <laughs> But with better actors, let's face it. Um, you know, I, I there's there's a certain charm of that, and yes, you kind of get that in Murder on the Orient Express. You know, you had Michelle Pfeiffer and et cetera, et cetera. But that's to me the the point of having one of these movies where everybody is kind of elevated, and I feel like. He tried to do that with the last one, and we got Army Hammer, who then, <laughs> the last you know, movie now he's is so cursed. <laughs> uh, you got like, Army thought, Hammer and Russell Brand in the same movie. Yeah, and I thought Gal Gadot did a really good job in the I last so movie too, but she she's kind of tossed into that cursed aspect as well. Yeah, but that you have Russell Brand, who is now you know an accused rapist and. A uh, right wing nut job, and you've got Army Hammer who is talking about eating people, and now sells timeshares in the Bahamas. Um, oh my god! You know, I, he might have said, "Oh, you know what? Let's maybe not get people who are too well known. We'll get Jimmy Dornan. He just did that sex movie. And, <laughs> you know, Tina Fey, she's likable, but I, it to me, it was just kind of like, oh shit." I, I want I want that star studded mm-hmm. you know cast that and it and it seems like because he's directing and starring as Boro, he doesn't want anybody to kind of outshine him. Mm. That's just what I got from this last one. He's a good director. He he's a good director. Oh, this, yeah. is a, this is a solidly professional film. It looks good. He makes interesting directorial choices. Uh, it's just unfortunate that I just don't think that the central mystery is good enough and his and the characterizations aren't strong enough to get you past how predictable it is. No, no, not at all. And that's what, having just listened to Halloween Party, I thought that was a more compelling mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that you can't be, it's taboo to 
kill kids, but I think it would have the stakes would have been raised mm. had it been the original mystery. Um, if you're not a big Agatha Christie fan, the movie is serviceable. It's fine. You sit and watch, look at the gorgeous locations and the great cinematography. The performances are good. It's just, it's lacking something. And I don't know if that's because Kenneth Branagh needs to be the star as Poirot. So. Yeah. It's sad. It, this could be a, this could be a good franchise, but it's just, it's not. It's not a good franchise. It's not going. It's not going well <laughs> enough. And and you know the box office kind of bears that out. Although that this movie did open better than Death on the Nile did. Death on the Nile was also a, a you know a, it was it was mid. It was not too far off from having theaters just reopen just as it was coming out. So yeah, uh, it makes sense that that would be a lower opening. But uh, the the chances of this one you know cracking a hundred million or getting it's it's limited. Uh, it's still, it's got a chance internationally. The the last movie was profitable only because international numbers were high. The opening international numbers for this one were a little bit weak, and uh, that could be the death of this franchise. Yeah, I mean, I hope not. I would like to see, you know, I would like to see him take a little bit of a backseat to the cast and continue because mm-hmm. there's some really fun stories out there. Uh, Agatha Christie, you know, she does the closed door mysteries or the locked door mysteries and. Um, those are fun, but they're not, they don't necessarily, um, lend themselves to having Poirot as the star. Mm-hmm. You always get the flavor of the, of the setting and of the people that doesn't, and, and Poirot is kind of thrown into it. And that's what I like about those. So I'm hoping that she'll or he'll continue to do these, but to kind of take a backseat to the cast. We shall see. The international numbers and next weekend's numbers will probably bear out whether or not there'll be many more of uh, these, this version of anyway, of Agatha Christie, or if we have to wait, you know, for 20 years to, to get another reboot. Or actually the time variable is probably short. It's probably 10 years before we get another reboot. <laughs> well, I mean, he could also just direct Miss Marple movies. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, that, I'm, not yeah, I'm not joking. No, that's yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's a few of those out there. There's the BBC series. There's the, uh, the mirror cracked, which is a complete camp fest with Agatha Christie's or uh, I'm sorry, Miss Marple played by Angela Lansbury and Kim Novak and uh, Elizabeth Taylor going after each other. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that one. No, no I'm not. Uh, it's, it's there's a, there's a scene where they're going at each other. That's just gold. <laughs> All right. Well, sticking with Agatha Christie as a theme, our classic this week is 1957's witness for the prosecution directed by Billy Wilder and starring Charles Lawton, Tyrone power and Marlena Dietrich, as well as Elsa Lancaster. It's a, a story about a man who is accused of killing, killing an elderly woman who he claims to have befriended. Uh, he hires a lawyer, uh, Played by Charles Larton, uh, Sir Wilfred, and uh, this is a movie that I, you know you go into it thinking Agatha Christie. Okay, this will be a mystery, and it's not a mystery. <laughs> it's not uh, Tyrone Power's story about being a nice, nice-looking, handsome young man who meets an elderly woman and becomes her friend is never believable for a moment. Uh, <laughs> he, he has a he has an alibi for her for her murder. It's given to him by his wife, but she is pretty shady. Marlena Dietrich comes in and immediately you know, throws your suspicion onto herself and and whether or not she'll actually stand up for her husband in court. And none of it matters because this movie is so fucking brilliant because Charles Lawton delivers the best character. He's so entertaining. There's a moment in this movie where he's just he he's just got a he's just back from a heart attack. He's just recovered. He's coming home for the first time. He's being introduced to this case almost immediately upon arrival and of course his whole team is like, please don't do this. You're not ready to go back to work. And there's just this scene where they've given him this lift on his, uh, on the stairs, this mechanical lift to go upstairs. And he's the childlike delight that he has in operating this thing is one of the most entertaining things of the movie. And it has nothing to do with the central, with the central mystery. Uh, he's not, he's, he's so capable and so smart. And, as much as he goes for this convoluted, 
uh, mystery and gets a little bit of misdirected, he never seems like he's completely been outwitted. And by the end, of course, he hasn't been outwitted. He's no, he knows exactly what happened, but you know, you've got to be able to prove it in court. And, and, uh, in that way he, he has been, he has been had a little bit, uh, but I found him just so entertaining. Charles Lawton is so not a movie star. He's just such a character actor, but he's a character actor who's been given a movie star role and he just kills it. He's better than any movie star that you could put in this role. Uh, cause he's just so different. He's got such a different energy and such a different approach. He's got chemistry with, uh, off, just off the charts with everybody in this movie uh, to the point where he seems to have a moment with everybody in the movie where, where he's just the most entertaining person around. I love this movie, Jeff. I'm with you about 95%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 5% is Tyrone power. Mm. Um, Charles Lawton is undeniably the star of the movie. He is the reason that we're all here. He's the reason that we're engaged um, like you said, his relationships with everybody, especially Elsa Lanchester, who was his real life wife, hmm. uh, is Miss Plimsoll, the nurse. <laughs> that makes um, so much sense. <laughs> I, that, right? Yeah. So, I was like, so God, great together. Oh. I mean, neither one of them is a ravishing beauty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and Charles Lawton by this time in his life was a big kind of like large man who was also larger than life and Elsa Lanchester who played the bride of Frankenstein um, in the bride of Frankenstein. Uh, <laughs> she's known for that, but she was uh, an amazing character actress for the rest of her career. Uh, you know, she lived to be 84, I think, and was just, she was on everything and she's fabulous in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the two of them and Marlena Dietrich, I and uh, Una O'Connor, who plays the maid uh, of Miss French, mm-hmm. Mrs. French, she was also in Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man, and she was a character actress who was in a lot of the Universal horror movies and uh, the, you know the like. She is, she's not as kind of una o'connor in this movie but she is she's kind of playing that but just down a little bit she's great um you know the cast i just personally think tyrone power was a little old Mm. for the and plus he tyrone power had uh four he, he would drink constantly and smoked up to four packs of cigarettes a day yeah he died uh just a year after this movie came out yeah and he was, and he was only, only what 45. Was, yeah, he was 45. And in this movie, he looks about 55. Mm. And when you when you look at the cast and how old they were when they made this, most of Charles the Lawton, cast was. Can I, can I blow your mind with this? Charles Lawton's 57 years old making this movie. Yeah. He looks like yeah. he's about 88. It's but that fits his character. It's insane. Yeah, it is. It fits yeah. his character perfectly. But I, I did the math. Like he was, they have a conversation with his assistant where he's talking about, you know, we met uh, thirty years ago, and I'm like, wait a minute, and I'm doing the math. Like, oh shit, that does match. <laughs> he was 57 <laughs> when he made the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the man was like, he was because he was such a big guy, and he just, you know, he ate like crazy and just kind of let himself go a little bit. Yes, he, he did look at least 10 years older than his actual age here. But Tyrone power shouldn't look 60. If he's uh, ostensibly Mrs. French in this movie was 56. I think they said her name, her age was, and that's a hard 56 (laughs) because so the math isn't really mathing with a lot of, you know, but, uh, Mrs. Emily Jane French was 57 or so and really looked like somebody who was 70 today. And Tyrone Power, he looked like he was pushing 60 <laughs> when he was only in his 40s because of the drinking and the smoking and whatever. Yeah. I think if Cary Grant, who wanted to play that part, had played it, it would have been a little more believable. But I understand, you know, that 
They wanted an actor, not necessarily a personality. Also, I think I because think, I think you don't want to take too much attention away from Charles Lawton. The one strength that I think that Tyrone Power has is that he doesn't have the presence to pull focus away from where the movie really is. Mm-hmm. And Cary Grant would. He's a magnetic personality who would have pulled focus. Well, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, William Holden was also considered for the part. Mm-hmm. And I think he would have been fantastic in it. He would have you know, been around the right age um, for the character. Perhaps. But I think, you know, that it just took out of it a little bit because of the fact that he he was so like hard looking Hmm. and we're supposed to think that he, you know, he's a gigolo who's gotten this old woman to give him all our money. And, you know, I don't know. That's, (laughs) that's what took me out of it. Mm -hmm. But every time it was Charles Lawton and anybody, especially Elsa Lanchester, um, you know, the, the chemistry that he had with almost every single person, every single person, (laughs) It was incredible. Was great. Uh, um, I can't. And and of course, Billy Billy Wilder just knows how to make this movie. He knows, like I think he knows that the mystery, the central mystery, is a bit convoluted. I think he knows that. And I think what he le- that's why he he leans into Lawton's performance. He leans into letting Lawton walk away with the movie, and that is the the best choice as a director he can make. On top of that, he's also you know committed. This in this wonderful screenplay, and and he knows exactly you know that Lawton can play this character, and it's as if he's really created a stage for Lawton, and that's such a again he's such a great instinctual director. He just knows how to do this. Yeah, I adore this movie. <laughs> I really do. I <laughs> fell in love with it over and over again as I was watching it. It's just such a smart movie. Even just the opening moments where he he tells you because you know, he again you're, if you're showing this to an American audience you need to let us know right away that this is not an American courtroom and so the first image of this movie is a British courtroom and it is different it's set up different you've got m- more than one judge you've got all this pomp and circumstance going on it's not like an American courtroom but it's going to play a little bit like an American courtroom drama and that that aspect of of that that foreignness is exciting it bring it draws you in from the immediate moment like a british court i wonder what that's like and boom you're in the movie <laughs> right there yeah. he's grabbed you with just one image that's a great director yeah he's i i there's nothing that he's ever done that i've watched that i've been like oh my god what a slog mm-hmm. and i think that's because he's an actor's director Mm. great collaborator you know, he's all, yeah yeah he he's always willing to listen and if he's if he knows he's right about something he will say or he would say he was right and 95 percent of the time people are like uh yeah he was right i was wrong <laughs> and i'll admit it you know oh, so terrific all right, uh, the 93 podcast, we did not record this past weekend due to illness, but we will have uh, a double episode coming up with uh, uh, this week's movie and next week's movie, which is uh, Days and the Good Views. This week's movie, I, I swear to God, Jeff, this has been happening to me all day. I don't know why. I, I, I do like this movie a good deal, but I keep having to look at notes to go, it's called The Age of Innocence. <laughs> <laughs> I keep I have forgotten this title at least seven times today when I was trying to recall it. It's <laughs> driving me insane. Why can't I remember the title of this movie? The Age of Innocence, nineteen ninety three, starring uh, Daniel da- Daniel Day Lewis and uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Winona Ryder. Uh, it's a proper eighteen hundreds uh, romance set in the eighteen seventies, I believe. Uh, it tells the story of a man who is mar- getting married to a much younger woman, uh, but he also has this woman that he met years ago, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, who he has carried this torch for for a number of years. And she is the aunt of Winona Ryder's character. And so obviously there's a lot of things that would prevent them from trying to ch- prevent him from trying to change course to go back to this woman that he used to love now that he's betrothed to this much younger woman who he doesn't exactly care for. He loves her 
he's trying to love her, but he's also kind of annoyed by her because she's so much younger than he is and so much less. Well, he calls it imaginative. <laughs> and and for some reason, that is an inc- that is an insult that lands while you're watching this movie when he calls her unimaginative. <laughs> this movie, Martin Scorsese has called it his most violent film. And in many ways, yeah, I can see it because the insults are withering and these people are constantly hammering each other. But in this most proper dialogue that you almost need to do homework on to fully understand. (laughs) And that makes it so exciting to watch when you do get the reference. Uh, For me, one of the things that stood out, like the first image of the movie is a flower. And I'm like, Okay, and I want to, and he's holding on that, and then he goes to an image of a flower as the first action of the movie. An opera singer picks up a flower, and I'm like, "All right, I got to look at this for a second. And in the 1800s, there was this thing where people were so bored. <laughs> I'm assuming this came about because of boredom. They would use flowers to send messages to the point where people actually wrote books about what flowers mean. What it's like the it's like the the hanky code in the, in the 70s New York. <laughs> like, you have this code of flowers. The, the Victorian hanky code. <laughs> yes. It's this code of flowers. So the color of the flower that you send to someone or the type of flower that you send to someone or even how you've wrapped that flower, uh, that set of flowers that you're sending, sends a message. And so I'm, I'm watching the movie and I'm reading along the Old Farmer's Almanac getting the meaning behind each flower. And it's never mentioned in the movie that that is what Scorsese is doing, but that is what Scorsese is doing because each of the flowers mentioned and each time flowers just come up, whether in image or in dialogue, they mean something. And I was so excited to see what the next flower was going to be. (laughs) I like this movie a lot. I think it's terrific. I'm very curious to see how uh, MJ and Amy take to it, but have you seen The Age of Innocence? I think I saw it <laughs> when it came out. Mm. Like, I, like the, my theme for 1993 is I was reading. I was reading a lot of Premier Magazine, mm. so I know that they talked endlessly about it. And um, you know, Winona Ryder is a serious actress now, and you know, <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer is fresh off of her. Catwoman role and you know going back to dangerous liaisons territory and blah 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 and i'm like i'm probably gonna see this and i think i rented it on video set mm-hmm. but i don't remember anything about it so i may have like rented it and not watched it hmm. i know that in so, my in my head i had mixed it up a lot with dangerous liaisons i assumed it was a a, a sexy sweaty victorian <laughs> drama you know I, that's what i thought it was and it's PG. This is a PG film. There's actually no sex, really, in the entire movie. Uh, and and uh, it's all about dialogue and propriety and sort of deconstructing, it, trying to decode the, the 1800s via you know, various different imagery and the way people talk and the way people discuss each other. Uh, they, they, where no one will say exactly what they mean, but they also say exactly what they mean. And it's fasc- it's fascinating to 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 hear this dialogue play off. Uh, Miriam Margulies is in this movie, and she plays like the eldest of all the elders in the movie. And and she is so she was like what thirty in this, movie? <laughs> right? She is so good in this movie, though. She's so she's so interesting, and she's just so tired of all the bullshit. Uh, but she goes along with it. She she's the one who enforces all of the bullshit, even as she because she's clearly. Uh, tired of it and about to die <laughs> it's so fantastic but everybody's really good in this even Winona Ryder who got a lot of shit at the time for being in a Scorsese movie and like what's that teenage you know heartthrob girl Heather's girl doing in a Scorsese movie she's in over her head she's not in over her head they wrote her a great character and she and she delivers there's a couple of moments where she sets him straight so hard that you're like damn girl where'd that come from <laughs> <laughs> And and yet she remains this sort of naive character throughout who, you know, tries to see the world, see the best in the world. But she's also smart enough to know, like, I can see your head turning, husband. You're going to stop doing that now. <laughs> and it's really it's really kind of a couple of great scenes where you're like, damn, that is impressive that she that she saw that. 
but not that he's all that brilliant. It's just he's kind of not trying very hard to hide it either. But it's it's great. The implicitness is just mm, superb. I uh, absolutely recommend The Age of Innocence. It's turning thirty this weekend or turned thirty this past weekend, and uh, awesome film. Absolutely awesome. I should cool. expect no less from Martin Scorsese, of course. Well, I mean, he is the second coming of Christ. <laughs> He's no Rob Zombie. Let's I, just put it that way. <laughs> I guess I used to look at this movie as a kid as like homework because it's like in the 1800s and like there's a lot of talking and I don't know. I don't want to watch that. I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I watched yeah. it now. I'm so much, I'm so glad that I gave it uh, a chance again because you know he is that good. Scorsese is the, the jokes. We can joke all we want about how dude bros have have you know taken some of Scorsese. Like truly, he is that good. Good to know. I will check it out. All right, Jeff. Anything you want to mention before we uh, before we sign off? Um, let's see. Well, I've got uh, this weekend was supposed to be Midwest Monster Fest. It got canceled. Uh, so next weekend, the uh, on the thirtieth in Chicago. If you're anywhere near Chicago or want to come for a great show, uh, the massacre is playing at the. Um, at uh the davis theater mm-hmm. and you'll get to see the original black christmas nice. on the big screen um lots of horror movies just i mean just like uh i'm trying I, i'm draw. of course i'm drawing a blank on the show that i'm gonna be at uh because i just saw something for the uh drive-in massacre which is the weekend after that um but which if you're a big fan of hello, Mary Lou prom night two mm-hmm. on uh, the drive-in massacre, the sixth and the seventh is going to be showing a rare 35 millimeter print of that. So you should come and see that. Uh, and the director is actually going to be there. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> recently I was talking to somebody about the movie spider baby, which mm-hmm. I have never seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the massacre, on September 30th at the Davis Theater in Chicago, Spider Baby is playing Serial Mom, Slumber Party Massacre, which is a great feminist horror movie uh, with Brinkus Stevens in person. Uh, Reanimator, if you've never seen that on the big screen, it's a good chance to see that. Uh, Black Christmas, um, Critters, and Mausoleum. I will be there till about midnight because I have to drive back to the quad cities because the next day I'll be at the Ridge uh, in the afternoon selling some of my stuff. Um, but yeah, if you can make any of these shows there, it's, it's, you can also at noon get to see Nosferatu with a live organ and oh, scratch wow. and sniff cards. That's awesome. How fun does that sound? That sounds awesome. Um, uh, tickets are 30 bucks. You can get them at terrors of terror on the terror in the aisles. Ticket uh, if you're in Chicago, you can get them at Lori's Planet of the Sound, Bucket of Blood, Books and Records, and Graveface in Chicago. Um, you know, look up uh, the massacre on Facebook. Uh, I'll be posting some of it. I'll actually post it on our on our page too, so you get a chance to see it. But as somebody whose favorite movie is Black Christmas from '74, getting to see that on the big screen for the first time, I. I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to get there probably about 10 o'clock in the morning to set up. And then I'm going to go reserve the best seat in the house so I can sit and watch it. So come and join me. All right, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good night. Bye. Bye.